the staff where we talk about our point of view And we share the things we're gonna do And we hope you're learning something new Cause the path to mastering theory begins with you Welcome to Notes from the Staff, a podcast from the creators of U-Theory, where we dive into conversations about music theory, ear training, and music technology with members of the U-Theory staff and thought leaders from the world of music education. Hi, I'm Greg Risto, founder of U-Theory and associate professor of conducting at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music. And I'm David Newman. I teach at James Madison University, and I write code and create content for U-Theory. We have two topics for today, hexachordal solmization and recent trends in music theory pedagogy. And with us to talk about both is Dr. Megan Case Long. Dr. Long is Associate Professor of Music Theory at the Oberlin Conservatory of Music and a scholar of vocal music in the 16th and 17th centuries. She's the recipient of the 2021 Wallace Berry Award from the Society for Music Theory, the top award for a music theory book, for her work Hearing Homophony, Tonal Expectations, at the turn of the 17th century. Her writing has appeared in the Journal of Music Theory and Music Theory Spectrum, among others, and she's the editor of SMTV, the Society for Music Theory's video journal. We've put a link in the show notes. She's received numerous grants and fellowships, including awards from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the American Council of Learned Societies. Megan, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. I'm really excited for both of our topics today. Uh, hexachordal solmization is uh, something I've heard a lot about over the years, but not really done. Uh, we thought it'd be fun to chat about because it's, you know, it's this solfege pedagogy system that has a really rich history, but that is, I think, not something. I don't know, David, have you done much hexachordal solmization? I've done almost none, but I have been super interested in historical pedagogical styles and partimenti. And when I read about the book, The Solfeggio Tradition, I, I ordered a copy and uh, started to read it. And so I've found it incredibly interesting. Yeah, one of the things I really love about hexachordal solmization is that it sounds really scary. Like the word sounds really scary, hexachordal solmization. And um, when you read about it, it sounds impossible. Like how would you possibly do it? But it's actually pretty pretty simple to learn and to to put together. And you know, I mean, it was invented to teach little children how to sing. Um, just the same reasons that we use solfege today. And it's it's you know just as accessible and just as logical and approachable as any of the other kinds of solfege systems that we already use and we already teach. Um, and especially if, like me, you're immersed in music of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, it is so illuminating. And it it really the way they say when you learn a new language, you start to think in a different way. I feel very much that way about singing Renaissance music using hexachordal solmization. I just hear the music differently. I make different musical connections. I feel like I have a much better understanding of how the composers and the musicians that they were writing for understood what they were doing. And um, that's, I find, extremely exciting. It's like unlocking um, a, unlocking a door into this uh, into the world of the Renaissance, which can be a hard place to access. So what is hexachordal solmization? I think the only time I heard the word hexachordal in my music theory training was polyhexachordal combinatoriality in oh my like crazy 20th century set theory. We're, we're not talking about like 6Z7 hexachords, are we? What, what is this? Absolutely not. It is, it is the opposite of that in every way. Um, so hexachordal solmization is the original kind of solfege, and it dates from the Middle Ages, and it was used all the way through the Renaissance. Um, and a hexachord just means a six-note collection, right? Hexa, six, six notes. And so the pattern of the hexachord is ud, re, mi, fa, sol, la. So just like our modern do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, except we use ut instead of do. Um, and the idea in the Middle Ages was that the notes that were available to sing, the scale, the gamut, um, you could make that six note pattern in three different places. So you could make it on F using a B flat, ud, re, mi, fa, sol, la. And you could make it on C with no B, ud, re, mi, fa, sol, la. And then you could make it on G. Um, I'm not in the right key. Ud, re, mi, fa, sol, la. Um, with a B natural, right? And so you have this one pattern and it can only be replicated at three places in the gamut. 
And those three places are important and distinct because the middle of our hexachord is our half step between me and fa. Um, and so the hexachord is always um, helping us orient to where the half step is. Um, and so just like modern solmization helps us figure out where our half steps are, um, just exactly the same principle um, is supporting the hexachords, just um, a little more flexible than modern solmization because the way the scale is constructed in the Renaissance is a little bit different and a little more flexible than the modern scale. Um, the other thing that's important to understand about hexachords is that obviously most melodies have more than six notes in them, <laughs> right? So um, the way it works is that you do what's called mutation. You mutate from one hexachord to another hexachord when you're extending beyond the range of of your single hexachord. Um, and it's by linking these hexachords together that you can fill out um, and sing a whole a whole tune. So like if we wanted to just sing what we'd think of now as a major scale, how could we do that since we don't have T? Um, yeah, I think, actually, I think the minor scales are a better mm -hmm. way of demonstrating what's interesting about hexachords. Could, do you have a D? Could I get a D from yep. the air? Okay, so say we wanted to sing a D Dorian scale, so all the white notes on the piano starting on D. So D, we're going to start in the C hexachord. Um, so D is going to be Re in the C hexachord. So we're going to sing Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La. And when we get to La, we're out of notes, right? So we need to mutate. And since we're headed to uh, B natural, we need the G hexachord, because that's the one with B natural in it. So we'll sing Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, Re, Mi, Fa, and that takes us right up our scale. Notice that the low D re and the high D sol are actually different syllables. Uh, so we don't necessarily have octave equivalents in the syllables that we use, but the mutation from the C hexachord to the G hexachord makes sure that our half step is in the right place. Now say we wanted to sing a D aeolian scale. So we're gonna use a B flat instead of a B natural. Then we need to mutate to the F hexachord instead of the G hexachord, and that's going to put our half step in a different place. So we would sing, uh, what would we sing? Re, mi, fa, re, mi, fa, sol, la. Hmm. Re, mi, fa, re, mi, fa, sol, la. So we mutate just a teeny tiny bit earlier from the C hexachord into the F hexachord, and then that ensures that our half step is between A and B flat, and we get our D Aeolian scale instead of our D Dorian scale. And this is useful because tunes built on D in the Renaissance will use both B natural and B flat. So once you get up to G A, you can kind of go either direction depending on what your tune is doing. And I noticed in both of those that uh, that the the text, as it were, of the scale kind of repeated itself. You had you started when you when you mutated, it began with Re Mi Fa So each time. Is that significant in, in terms of like we think of Renaissance music off having these points of imitation at different pitch levels. Is is that significant in the solfege system that you sort of hear where those possible places of repetition are when you solfege? Absolutely. And this is one of the most fun things about singing Renaissance music on solmization. So it doesn't work every time, but often when you have a motive and then it's imitated at the fourth or the fifth above or below, um, the, the motive will have the same solmization in every in every hexachord. So we might sing re la sol fa mi re and then another voice will sing re la sol fa mi re. <laughs> and so you can hear these connections and then eventually often um, a, another voice will come in at a new pitch level and we'll introduce a new accidental. So then we get re la sol fa mi re. So like the motivation for the introduction of say a B flat or something will come from um, the solmization uh, and, and this desire to maintain the solmization. And Renaissance music theorists even had a special name for imitation where um, the solmization stayed exactly the same. Um, they called imitation that was diatonic, so where the half steps might move around. They called that imitazione. Uh, and then imitation where the half steps were exact and the solmization was exactly the same, they called fuga, oh. the precursor to our word fugue. Uh, yeah. 
So, um, you know, and they're very insistent about this in the treatises. Like, no, 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 no. People said that this was fuga, but the syllables change. And in fuga, the syllables have to stay the same. So there's this real emphasis on how you're solemnizing, how you're singing the syllables, what their names are, um, that shapes uh, what kind of imitation is happening. And obviously this was meant to teach singers, but I gather that it's also meant to teach other kinds of musicians so that musicians were taught through singing. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And it's important to remember that like before anyone does any composing in the Renaissance, what they're doing is improvising, right? And so little children are taught to improvise pretty complex polyphonic music. And when a composer is notating music, is writing music out, what they're really doing is writing out a complex improvisation. Um, and so having these patterns that repeat themselves in predictable ways is a really helpful strategy for uh, successfully uh, improvising and then successfully composing complex polyphony because you don't have to memorize as many combinations when you know that those combinations can be transposed by fifth without changing anything about the way your counterpoint is structured. So if, if I'm tracking this right, you have access to B flat and B natural in the system but what about all of my other black notes? This is a great question. And it's um, a way in which the kind of background scale of Renaissance music is pretty different from the background scale of contemporary music. Um, so Renaissance music is built on what's called the gamut. Um, and if you've heard like, oh, we're going to run the gamut, like that's um, that comes from solmization. And gamut is, is a kind of portmanteau of gamma ut. Gamma being the lowest note of the scale and ut being the solmization syllable for that note. Mm. So the Renaissance gamut, it's the set of notes that are considered diatonic in the Renaissance. So more like a major scale or something than like the all of the keys on the piano. And it starts from the G at the bottom of the bass clef staff and it goes up to the E at the top of the treble clef staff. And you hear theorists will say something like, well, that reason that's the end of the gamut is because anything below that will sound like a low grumbling and anything above that will sound like a kind of constrained shrieking. Uh, so, so our gamut is, is kind of constrained in, in range and register. And the gamut includes what we think of as all the white notes on the piano and also B flat, right? So like in the example of the Dorian versus the Aeolian scale, B natural and B flat are both available pretty much all of the time. Um, and, uh, if you've seen like the complicated names for notes, like, um, a la mi re or, uh, si sol fa ut, what those names are, that's how Renaissance musicians named the notes. They're just, um, the letter name for the note and then all the possible solmization syllables that that note could have. <laughs> So okay, I wish I'm sorry. Greg this is it, making a face I, like he's in awe right I'm now. I'm just thinking of like there's that Shakespeare fa mi bianca. Like there, there are these places where you hear this in Shakespeare, and I just thought, thought it was a bunch of notes, but it's it, it's like one note. Yes. Um. If we if we find that passage, I'd be happy to parse it for you, to construe it for you, which is I think the language she uses. <laughs> yeah. So if you want to dig that up, that might be fun to look at. I think I think it's maybe be mi bianca. What is the what is the line from? Uh, on. It's she's she's also <laughs> conjugating Latin verbs or something, right? There was also a composer who used the pseudonym Alamire. Am I remembering yes. that correctly? And, and so Alamire is, is like A, La, Mi, Re, right? right? So the note A is La in the C hexachord, Mi in the F hexachord, and Re in the G hexachord. And this composer, Alamire, famously would sign his name by just drawing a bass clef and the note A. <laughs> because if you saw that, you would say Alamire. That was the name of the note. Awesome. So that was not a pseudonym. It was a real name, or was it a pseudonym? I think that was his real name. I don't know. I don't know for sure. Um, but that's the sort of. There's a lot of puns that are possible using solmization, and that's the. It's I think really indicative of the way musicians in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance thought. Right, just like we see the note, the note E flat, and we say that's an E flat. You know, and sometimes students will say that's an E, and we're like, no, 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 no. The name of the note is E flat, and that's important. Um, you know, the note A was A la mi re. There was no just A in the Renaissance. It was important that you used all of that note name and it, all of the syllables. And that was one of the ways you learned to navigate through the gamut as a, as a choir boy. Uh, maybe I should kind of restate what I said before about the gamut and, and talk a little bit about the Guidonian hand. Oh, yeah. 
Because I know Greg's now hunting for Bianca talking about... I, yeah, 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 yeah. Be my, be, be, be my Bianca, right? Is the... Uh, it's I found it's Act 3, Scene 1 of Shrew. But, uh... Oh, here we go. Gamut, I am the ground of all accord. A, Ray, to plead Hortensio's passion. B, me, Bianca, take him for thy lord. C, Fa, Ut, that loves with all affection. D, Sol, Ray, one clef, two notes have I. E, La, me, show pity or I die. Call you this gamut? Tut, I like it not. Old fashions please me best. I am not so nice to change true rules for old inventions. So what she's doing is is learning the gamut the same way a child would learn it, which is you say gam ut, a re, b mi, si fa ut, di sol re, e la mi. Um, and so she's just learning the, the first six notes of the gamut um, and just simply saying their full names in that passage. Wow. So so letter names also were a thing. Yes, absolutely. And one of the interesting things that that comes up a lot in terms of hexachordal solmization is, is there such thing as octave equivalence in this system? Since you remember when I sang my scales from D to D, um, D at the bottom was re and D at the top was sol or la, depending on which scale I was in. But they're both D, la, sol, re. Right. So so there is that octave equivalence built into the way the notes are named in the gamut, um, even while they might be solmized in different ways, depending on what octaves you're singing in. Or sometimes if you're singing in an ensemble, um, you'll be singing um, octave D's, say, and we'll be singing different syllables on the same note. But somebody will be singing an A that harmonizes with it. And that will be the same syllable as something that we're hearing Mm. in another voice. So was this the first version of solfege in Western music? Yeah, so it was. And it's the predecessor, obviously, to our modern solfege, right? Oud has changed into do, and we have T now, which is really useful. Um, but uh, it was invented for the same reasons that we use modern solmization. Um, so we don't exactly know the origins of the solmization system, but it's been attributed to Guido, Are- Guido of Arezzo, who was a monk, um, and he was active in the early 11th century. Um, he died in the year 1033. Um, and he had one of his responsibilities as a monk was teaching chant to choir boys. And if you're a monk in the Middle Ages, you sing chant all day, and you sing the entire Libra Usualis every year, right? So you sing thousands and thousands and thousands of chants. And you learn them all by ear and you remember them all because, you know, you're in a culture of that's steeped in memory. Um, And, you know, Guido got frustrated with how time consuming it was to teach all of this repertory to choir boys. And so he came up with this system um, to make it more efficient to teach them new chant. And so the idea was, you know, I will teach these children this pattern, ut, re, mi, fa, sol, la, and then I will point to those different notes, and then they'll be able to sing those notes back to me. And the way he pointed to them was he drew all of the notes, or he imagined all of the notes in a spiral on the palm of your hand. So you've probably seen these diagrams where you see a hand and like a million little letters and note names and things and class and all sorts of things written on hand. And the idea was that you would hold up your hand for the choir boys and you would point to whichever joint represented the specific note they were supposed to sing, and then they would sing that note back to you. And uh, the way Guido taught them, uh, the way Guido taught them uh, how the relationships between the notes worked, where the half steps and whole steps were, was the same way we teach children now, which is he used a song like Doe a Deer, a Female Deer. Um, his song was a chant that he composed called Ut Quayant Loxis, but it was the same idea Ut quean laxis, rezonare fibris, mira gestorum. So exactly the same idea, ut re mi fa sola. Each line, right, was one of the notes. And so he used that as a reference and then was able to kind of extrapolate outwards from that with his students to teach them chants. And it's very similar to using solfege hand signs today, like we often do in the classroom. Um, and it's U- not a, U- oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Greg. I was going to say, so Utquain, if I remember, because when I took a Renaissance counterpoint in grad school, uh, assignment number one was to memorize Utquain and, and to sing it back. <laughs> and if I recall, 
it doesn't ever leave the first those first six notes, that first hexachord. Is that right? It, it, there are no mutations in it? That's right. And this is how you teach solmization to children, and this is how I teach solmization to my college students too, is you start with tunes that live in one hexachord and you get comfortable, and then you add um, a, a single mutation. So you add tunes that start in your main hexachord and then just occasionally mutate upwards by one hexachord. And then you add, you know, B flats and B naturals to introduce a little more complication. And then maybe you add something that will also mutate down below, right? So, so you kind of gradually add complexity and add mutations as you go um, until each each mutation becomes kind of second nature. Um, because you can't, when you're singing on hexachords, it's not like you have access to every possible syllable at every possible moment. There are fixed locations where you might mutate from one hexachord to another. Um, and so it's all about kind of practicing and getting familiar with those exact locations. One more thing I wanted to say about um, the Guidonian hand and Uclean Loxis is that it's not a coincidence that the history of staff notation coincides pretty much exactly with the history of solmization. Because what's happening in the 11th century is a shift from an entirely oral tradition uh, where um, music notation is just a mnemonic device to help remind you, wait, which chant was this? Um, so you've probably seen like neums, like unheightened neums and heightened neums, which are just like kind of squiggles that tell you kind of the contour of your chant. Um, this is a period when all of a sudden we have the invention of the, the five-line staff or the four-line staff and the clef and these more precise ways for notating the exact locations of half and whole steps. So we have to, if we're going to have a notation that's exact like that, we also have to have a system for understanding how to read that notation. Um, and hexachordal solmization uh, goes hand in hand with staff notation for that reason. I, I am fascinated by this. I have to say, I, I, I'm getting a little caught up on this, but I'm wondering about the still, how do I get to the other black notes? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to answer your question. So, how, so you know, there's this idea, right, that like, oh, well, Renaissance music, it's in the modes. It's very pure. It just doesn't use accidentals. And that's not true at all, right? And, oh, the gamut, it only has B flat in it. So what about, what about C sharp? Surely there are C sharps. So um, sharps and flats are different in this period. So sharps are kind of ornamental, right? And you use them um, like to get to make your cadences lovely. So say I'm cadencing on D, um, I might sing re, ut, re, and I'm going to be singing a C sharp there. Um, so the rule, which is not entirely agreed upon by all uh, Renaissance music theorists, <laughs> but is, is more or less shared by a critical mass of them, is that when you're singing a sharp, because that's a kind of decorative ornamental thing, you don't change your solmization. Um, so sol, fa, sol, no problem. You just kind of sharp your fa. You don't say anything different. Flats, though, will always change your solmization. So a flat will always be fa, no matter what. Hmm. So um, if we're hanging out in a world where we have no B flats, right, and all of a sudden we have a B flat, we're going to call that fa, and that will constitute a mutation into the F hexachord. And if we get an E flat, same idea. We're going to imagine what we call a fictive hexachord on B flat. Um, so imagine that ut is B flat, and then that E flat is going to be fa in our B flat hexachord. So just basically transposing our F hexachord down by fifth and transposing our whole gamut down by fifth to make that happen. Very cool. And that's where like people may have heard, was it fa super la? And is that where you just put a B, like a B flat on top of an A briefly? Yeah, more or less. So, so this, there's this principle, una nota super la, semper est canendum fa, which is bad Latin for, if you've only got one note above, above a la, you're going to call it fa. Um, and so the idea is if you're singing, ut re mi fa sol la fa la sol la fa la sol fa mi, you don't have to mutate all the way into your next hexachord, right? You're just going to go ahead and sing that one as a fa. And that rule mostly exists um, to avoid a tritone from fa up to mi. So, because we don't, what we don't want is fa sol la mi la sol fa. So fa sol la fa la sol fa um, kind of helps us prevent 
uh, that indecorum. It doesn't work every time. It's not like a hard and fast rule, but it's um, it's a good rule of thumb. It's a kind of shortcut for mutation uh, that accommodates really common melodic patterns in Renaissance music. And I, that starts to get into something that we hadn't even talked about, which is this idea of, of musica ficta. In other words, like we might be looking at a piece of, of Renaissance music and there might not be an accidental written, but we might have to sing one. Yes. Um, and, and the tune Green Sleeves is a really good example of this. Right. Um, if we see notated versions, right, it looks like re fa sol la mi la sol mi ut, something like that, right? Um, and a lot of people will flatten that B at the top, re fa sol la fa la sol mi ut, um, using that's using the fa super la principle as as a way of approaching that. It's not actually obvious that one or the other of those solutions is the right one or the best one, and it may be that that's a tune that could be sung both ways um, because that, yeah, these music of ficta accidentals are like non-notated accidentals that performers would have known to sing, that composers would have implied, right? But there's a gap between what composers might have implied and what compo- or what performers um, might have chosen to do in practice. And there are, there are some required ones too, right? Like at cadences, like you were saying. Yes. Music Ficta is a whole other is a whole other situation. Um, <laughs> it gets into a lot of really messy into a, re- a lot of really messy things that I don't think that your listeners are going to want to hear all about in excruciating detail. Uh, well, we I, we just did Music Ficta in my in my class this week, and uh, I think the students left with a lot more questions than they came in with uh, because the basic takeaway was all of your answers are probably right, and they're also probably all wrong, and we we kind of we kind of. <laughs> lived in that space. I also feel like as a, as a choral conductor, as a singer, every rehearsal I've been in where Musica Ficta ever comes up, we all leave with more questions than, yeah. <laughs> than answers like, what note should I sing in measure 23? So. You know, the interesting thing about Musica Ficta from the perspective of modern performance is we're so used to a score giving us all the information that we need. And in the Renaissance, that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, and it's not because this notation was deficient in some way. It's because it's it's really like a feature, not a bug of the notation that there is um, there's stuff left up to the performers and stuff that's left unnotated. And it's hard for us to reconstruct that now because it's been hundreds of years and a lot of that tradition has been lost. Um, But this idea that there's only one right set of notes to sing um, is a very modern idea. And in the Renaissance, you know, there are stories about people getting into fights about musica ficta in rehearsals. Like, oh, I think this should be flat, and I don't think this should be flat. And the composer's in the room, and nobody asks the composer. This is not relevant um, because, because, you know, there's flexibility. The same way that we wouldn't expect somebody to write out today all the rubato that you would take in a performance, right? Like, that would be so unmusical to put, like, quarter note equals 60, quarter note equals 58, quarter note equals 54, <laughs> quarter note equals 62, right? Although it's like I've that kind of... scores like that. <laughs> well, and we've all sung Carmina Burana, right, where every note has an accent and a tenuto and a staccato mark, right? Um, so I think, uh, you know, in the Renaissance, it's just like, why would you notate all of that stuff? Why, why, why are you trying to control something that should be up to the performer? Very cool. So you you mentioned early on, you said that that singing this way affects how you hear and understand this music. Could you talk a bit more about that? Oh, that's such a a big question. Uh, There's there's almost nothing about Renaissance music that I don't experience differently uh, now that I think more in terms of hexachordal solmization. I think for me, the biggest revelation is that you know B flat and B natural are both equal partners in the Renaissance style. Um, so there's not one of them is default and the other one is a, a deviation from the norm, but rather that they're both opportunities that are available to a composer over the course of say a motet. And that composer may or may not choose to take advantage of that B flat that's just right there waiting for him. Um, but it's there if if he wants it. Um, and that's, you know, a really different way of thinking about what it means to be diatonic than we're used to, where we're like, there's diatonic notes and then there's chromatic notes. 
Um, so there's a kind of flexibility, right? Um, that goes all the way back to how I sang those two D scales, where once we get to re mi fa sol la, we have a choice to make, right? We can go kind of either way. Um, that that is everywhere once you start looking for it in Renaissance music. Um, the other thing that I really notice is imitation. Um, noticing where imitative patterns are repeated with the same solmization syllables at different pitch levels. Um, and when I sing with my students, you know, if, if, if you're the second voice to enter and you've already heard your line and it's already been beautifully solmized for you, just because you're entering a fifth above, you just copy paste what just happened. Um, so that's, that's a really great opportunity that solmization provides. Um, Renaissance musicians also embedded all kinds of puns and jokes involving solmization into their music all the time. And those are really fun to uncover and really revealing about how um, people were thinking about solmization all the time, even if they were singing music on words or were just singing la, 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 la. Um, would you like to hear some more yeah. about some of those sorts of things? Yes, like, please. Thinking, can, are you able to tell these jokes uh, and explain these jokes in a way that doesn't ruin them for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's kind of two kinds of solmization tricks that I really like. Um, the first one is what's called the soggetto cavato, which is the idea of a subject that's carved from the words, right? And so like a famous example is the text, um, la fa re mi, which means like, leave me alone. Um, but if you notice, uh, la sha fa re mi sounds like the solmization syllables, la so fa re mi. So the composer sets it, la sha fa re mi. And every time it comes back at every pitch level, you can solmize it so that the syllables of the solmization syllables match up with the sounds of the words. And there are lots and lots and lots of examples of tunes like this where the composer um, took somebody's name or took their own name or anything like that, right? And turned it into a tune. Um, a kind of precursor to Bach's Bach motive, right? Same idea. Um, I was thinking, the, I don't know anybody who likes solfage puns. <laughs> I've never I'm heard at any solfege puns in my life. <laughs> They're everywhere, right? And and it's um, sometimes you'll find them just kind of like in the middle of of a motet or something. Like all of a sudden, like it's just for the altos. And I'm, like as an alto, I'm like, all right, this is just for me. <laughs> Nobody's gonna appreciate this but me. But I'm loving it in this moment. The other technique that composers use is a technique called ingani, which means deceptions. And the idea of ingani is you take a melody. Um, that's solmized in one way, and then you mutate somewhere unexpected, and you keep your solmization syllables the same, um, but you change the melodic contour of the tune. Uh, and so it's a deception because you think you're looking at two totally different melodies, but actually the solmization is the same for both mm. of those melodies, which is a neat trick. Mm. If you give me a second, I can find an example just pulling my copy of Zarlino's Art of Counterpoint off the shelf. <laughs> I'm As serious. I literally pulled my copy of Zarlino's Art of Counterpoint off the shelf. Okay, so here are Zarlino's examples of this concept that's called ingani, so deceptions. Um, he gives us a tune. And then he gives us the same tune, but different. And then he gives it a different way. Gotcha. And so there's a mutation between the first four notes, ut, re, mi, fa, and then the last four notes, last, what, five notes, la, sol, fa, mi, re. And he changes what that mutation looks like each time. Um, and so that gives us three different versions of the same tune um, that if you're looking at a score, right, you might not notice. You might not find a relationship between them. But if you're singing in psalmization, you can't miss them. <laughs> and there's lots of really great ways uh, to, to use this trick. It's really common in the reacher car. 
um, which is an instrumental compos- uh, type of composition that you, where you showcase like your most learned counterpoint. And there's this question of like, okay, well, ricercare means like to, to ricercare means to like seek out or to search for something. Um, and one theory of like what's being searched for when you're playing, usually on the organ, you're playing a ricercare is what you're searching for is the subject. And what the composer is doing is finding as many ways to hide or bury that subject in the counterpoint as possible. And you as the performer have to figure out using these ingani, these deceptions, where is the subject? Where is it now? What's happened to it? And these get extremely complicated to the point that some early 17th century musicians like um, Trabacci make these really complicated chromatic ones and they just label them. They're like, ingano, 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 because otherwise people can't find them because the tune is so disguised that they're like, wait, but like I did something really clever. Uh, let me let me show you. Oh, that's great. That's great. You know, I, um, I keep thinking with this that there's an interesting intersection between movable solfege and fixed solfege. And this kind of seems to live somewhere in between the two of them. Absolutely. Um, that's kind of, you know, I grew up on movable dose solfege and now I teach fixed dose solfege, which was a challenge. Um, and now I mostly think in terms of hexachordal solfege. Uh, so keeping three systems in mind is a real, is a real, um, challenge all the time. But one of the things I find interesting is that hexachordal solfege is both a movable solfege and a fixed solfege at the same time. And in some ways, you get a little bit of the best of both worlds when you're using the system, um, because you get this kind of sense of, you know, here, here are the actual notes I'm singing, right? Here's where I'm actually living in, in musical space relative to the notes I'm reading on the page. But also, here are where the half steps are. Here are musical relationships that are being replicated throughout um throughout this piece and I can kind of, I can feel that they're the same, even though they're happening at different places in the scale. Um, one of the reasons this works is because there's not that many keys in the Renaissance, right? So like you can't do hexachordal solmization on something in A flat major or B major or, you know, keys with a lot of accidentals because this is not a system that's designed to accommodate that. Um, but when you live in a world where there's only two key signatures, uh, there's what we call cantus durus, which is no key signature, the hard B, and cantus molis, soft B, where there's a B flat signature. Um, it's a lot easier to navigate that whole musical system using this kind of fixed movable hexachord system. Hmm. So pedagogically, when you're teaching hexachordal solfege, does that help? with fixed dough or movable dough, or does it hinder? Do people have trouble moving back and forth? That's a great question. I'm So I only teach hexachordal solmization to my, uh, to my juniors and seniors who are taking my Renaissance class. Um, mm. I, would not, uh, I would not foist it on my freshmen who are learning <laughs> fixed dough for the first time. Um, but I do like... And they're also learning scale degrees, yeah, right? Yeah, and a lot of them came in with movable dough. So we do a lot of uh, group therapy in RL Skills <laughs> 1 here. Uh, so I, I reserve hexachordal solmization for my seniors where I tell them, you know, you thought you didn't like fixed dough. Just wait. Uh, and, uh, but I think it really helps you to understand the Renaissance in a new yeah. way and helps get you in this mindset like that this music is just different in some important ways from music today and you know it they they pick it up pretty fast and and all of a sudden we're in class and we're like well isn't that a fa super la and like isn't this a ray tonality and how would that be impacted by you know this soul cadence here and it's really exciting to hear them using this vocabulary um that's native to the music and um you know you can't you just can't understand this music without having some of those tools it's a lot harder to find for instance, exact imitations versus diatonic imitations if you don't have access to solmization. It's almost impossible to learn how to do musica ficta if you don't have access to the tools of hexachordal solmization. Um, so navigating Renaissance music specifically, I think, is really, is really useful. When I teach hexachordal solmization, I like to use um, these duos written by Orlando Di Lasso in this collection from... Uh, 
It's called uh, Nove Ali Quote something, 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 something. It has this long name from 1577. And he has 12 texted duos and then 12 untexted duos. And this is uh, a tool I learned from Anne Smith, who is a musicologist and historical performance practice person in the UK. Um, but what she found was that the, the second set of these duos, the untexted lasso duos, um, are like clearly designed uh, to teach you like one new solmization challenge per per duo. And they're really smartly designed. They're kind of like um, really well-designed rhythms in that the hall rhythm book, um, which is that they start out in slow notes with like not a lot of mutations. And then each one gets like a little faster and then introduces more mutations and then introduces some syncopations and they get harder and harder and harder as they go. And then each duo is designed to kind of work a specific mutation point. Um, so I like to start with those in my class and the students kind of build up their solmization skills as they go. Uh, it's a, it's a great, it's a great pedagogical tool. And you can imagine these Renaissance musicians, you know, teaching music to choir boys in just exactly the same way. This raises so many interesting thoughts for me. Um, but you know, we, we I think back to episode one, when we were talking about different soulfish systems and even like, you know, do minor versus la minor and how, uh, depending on the music that you work with, one may be more suitable than the other. Um, it's so interesting to hear this carried over to hexachordal solfege, and, and here's a system perfectly matched to this this kind of music. Um, and also this balance of, 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 of thinking in fixed versus movable space, that, that, that keeping track of where you are on the staff and also where you are in, in your, your scale or hexachord. It's such, mm -hmm. a, such cool stuff. And at the risk of, uh, I don't want to uh, prematurely move us on, except that what I think is cool talking about the hexachordal system and how that was developed, and then looking at these, the, hearing about these lassos, uh, lasso pieces, um, is that these are people, active musicians, thinking about how to teach, about how am I, about pedagogy, how am I going to teach music? And we were. This was something we wanted to talk about. <laughs> Am I premature in moving us onward? No, no. I think I think that's I think that's good. I feel, I feel like I guess the only other question I would ask Megan is um, if someone wanted to learn. I mean, obviously you have you have really been spending a lot of time in hexachordal solmization at, with your with your own study. If someone wanted to learn the basics of this, where should they go? Um, I would recommend two resources that are a great place to start. Um, the first is there's a YouTube series called Early Music Sources done by Elam Rotem that is terrific. And he has a great video on hexachordal solmization that is a great place to start. Um, the other place I would look is Anne Smith, who has a book called The Performance of 16th Century Music. And there's a chapter in there that teaches how to mutate between hexachords and she's written out the solmization for a bunch of tunes and explained the thinking behind it and shows original sources and justifies all of that. Um, and so that's a great, a great place to learn these basic techniques. Um, so those are two places I would start. Those are, those are great. We'll put both of those in the show notes. Um, and then the other thing we wanted to chat about uh, is, you know, music theory has been changing a lot in recent years. And I think maybe, maybe more than even other fields uh, in academia as we sort of confront the the biases and biases in the way that we've been teaching these things. You've been really involved with a lot of work on that at Oberlin in particular. And I, I wonder if you might just talk with us a bit about that. You're so plugged into the broader music theory community. How, how is the world of music theory uh, evolving? This is something music theorists are thinking really hard about. Um, because the way we teach music theory hasn't changed very much since the 19th century. Um, but the things that we're training musicians to do has changed quite a lot since the 19th century. Um, you know, at a music conservatory like Oberlin, obviously we're training a lot of our students to go play in major orchestras or sing in major operas and opera companies. But a lot of our students are not doing that. A lot of our students are playing a lot of new music, are doing a lot of innovative work with technology, are thinking about outreach and bringing music to the broader public. Um, and we're seeing a lot more musical hybridization, right? We're seeing um, a lot more cultural appreciation um, in what we think of as the realm of classical music performance. 
And so one of the things that we're kind of grappling with as a discipline of pedagogues and a discipline of scholars is how do we prepare all of these musicians for their lives as musicians? Um, You know, one way that we've framed it here at Oberlin is that in the traditional conservatory music theory curriculum, we are really great at teaching our students to say extremely interesting things about music by Beethoven and Brahms. And that's great. That's a really worthwhile thing to do. But it's a little disheartening when you have a a junior come to your office with a piece by Ravel and say, I don't have anything to say about this. Uh, That's a real real failure of our pedagogy. And Ravel is not out there particularly, right? Ravel is, you know, a pretty mainstream canonical composer. So then what do you do when you have a student come in and they want to talk about hip hop or they want to talk about music videos? or they want to talk about something that Roomful of Teeth is doing, right? Or they want to talk about any number of uh, new things happening in the musical world. So different, different, you know, we're working kind of collectively as a community of music theorists to think about how to approach this problem. Um, and our solutions are emerging and are widely varied, ranging from, you know, on the one hand, just... Um, rediscovering the work of a lot of composers who are black, um, composers who are women, composers from South America and Latin America, composers who have been excluded from the canon. Um, I'm hesitant to use the word rediscovery because um, scholars of color have known about these composers and have been writing about these composers and teaching about these composers for a long time. But um, white scholars especially and white pedagogues have not been aware of this music. So um, you know, when we add more of this music into our curriculum, uh, it changes the questions we think to ask, and that changes the tools that we need to develop to answer those questions. So that's kind of one way that we're working on revamping the music theory curriculum. Another way is, is just really thinking much more broadly about what does it mean to think about, talk about, and write about music uh, when music isn't just Western concert music mostly written between the years, you know, uh, 1785 and 1914. You know, what if, what if we want to build tools to talk about a lot more music? So what we've tried to do at Oberlin is reframe our curriculum in terms of musical parameters that are not specific to any one kind of repertory. So our new freshman curriculum is about teaching about rhythm and meter. Um, and that, you know, includes, um, all sorts of things from timelines and the idea of groove and, um, you know, creates opportunities for us to talk about really complex metrical structures in 20th century art music, um, but also uh, African drumming and that sort of thing. Um, we're talking about timbre, uh, sound production, the different ways that uh, acoustics work and how timbre might be used as a kind of analytical tool. We're talking about melody. Um, So not just, you know, it used to be that we would teach species counterpoint, right? We would teach out of the the Fuchs book, which is like ostensibly teaching the Palestrina style. We'd say, well, Palestrina would write melodies that have no leaps larger than a fourth. And when you leap up by a fourth, you must descend. And, you know, and that's how you write a good melody. Well, so now, um, you know, in my class, we start with film scores. You know, we start with, with, uh, uh, Princess Leia's theme from the Star Wars soundtrack, uh, and 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 talk about like why is this a good melody? What are its characteristics? What kinds of tools might we use to analyze a melody? And that's you know, and and we don't have to use um, music in this kind of Western concert tradition to do that. You know, what are the values of melody in a pop music context? What are what are the melodic values in the context of the gamelan? Um, we're talking about harmony and different kinds of ways of combining different melodies uh, at the same time. Um, that is where we spend most of our time pretty steeped in Western music, but there's lots of other ways to think about and talk about harmony. Um, and we're talking about bass, uh, which is not something that I had ever really thought all that much about, but becomes very interesting when you start to think about like what what are all of the different ways that, that bass and bass lines work and how is that, um, how is that specific to different repertories, different cultures? Um, 
I really enjoyed spending some time with my students listening to Herbie Hancock's Chameleon and thinking about the bass riff at the opening of that and how it establishes groove. And um, so we're trying to trying to think about ways to frame the central questions of the curriculum that aren't um, necessarily specific to a single repertory. I love that. It sounds like that's how are the students responding to it? They love it. I've never had my students be more engaged and more excited. And what my hope is for my classes is that every student is going to see some kind of music that is important to them. And every student is going to see some kind of music that is totally unfamiliar to them. Um, and I want all of those experiences to be valued. I want my students who come in reading only guitar tablature to feel like their musicianship and musicality is meaningful and relevant. I want students who have only really looked at lead sheets before to feel that that's a kind of music notation that is valuable and that there is, um, that, that, that is as important for classical students to learn as it is for, you know, jazz students to learn how to read piano staves. Um, I want students whose primary experience is working with DAWs um, to have something to contribute to the class that nobody else has been able to contribute before. I want students whose background is in traditions that aren't um, the Western tradition to hear music that they grew up with or music that they like to perform, to hear that represented in the classroom. Um, so we have a long way to go. Obviously, we all have a lot to learn to be able to teach um, musics that are that we're not trained in in a way that's ethical and in a way that is is accurate and uh, respectful. But uh, it's been a, a really amazing experience to just start to sit down and learn about some new repertories and to meet brilliant people around the world who are working on this music and learn from them. Um, and to figure out how we can bring that experience into the classroom. So if if I'm working, say, with high school students to help to help prepare for this this broader approach to music theory, what what kinds of things should should we be stressing at that level, do you think? I think it's really important to teach students how to ask interesting questions and to learn that, you know, a piece of music or a repertory, will tell you what sorts of questions to ask of it if you don't come in with too many preconceived ideas about it. Um, so one way I like to start uh, my theory classes is to play, you know, of some top 40 song that has a lot of a lot of cool production techniques involved in it. And to say, if we were to build a music theory just to describe this piece of music, what sorts of things would we need to talk about here? Um, you know, and students hear so much, right? They're steeped in this music. They hear so much that I don't hear. And they're, they're talking to me about filter sweeps and reverb and like, oh, it sounds like she's underwater. And like, oh, it sounds like she's far away. And, and all of a sudden we're developing all of these schemas, all these categories for talking about what's happening. Oh, the, sa the size of the space she's in, it feels like it's changing. How does that go with the text? And, and like, oh, we're hearing a lot of audible breath. And like, why is that important? And that's stuff that, you know, doesn't come up on the AP music theory test, <laughs> um, but is very much a part of being a professional musician, a working musician today, and having interesting things to say about music is training your ears to listen for what's there and, and build around that. Um, I think the more we can empower our students to identify what's interesting about something and find their own way of talking about it, um, the, the better prepared they're going to be to embrace a new repertory, a new style that they're unfamiliar with and, and be game to, to see how it works and to get to know it. That's very cool. That's very cool. The, the, the sort of devil's advocate question, but what about part writing? Can they, can they still part write? You know, we're still teaching chords. We still do a lot of that. And, and, you know, if you actually look at what's being taught in music theory classrooms around the country, um, as much as we're making space for new repertories, we're still spending a lot of time on Mozart and Beethoven. You know, these people aren't going away. Um, I feel for my class, like if I'm going to teach Mozart arias, I love teaching Mozart arias. I should pick like two instead of nine, you know? So I'm trying to, I'm trying to think about how can I, um, how can I focus on, uh, the most important of these are the ones that I feel like I get the most pedagogical benefit from. Um, 
And what opportunities come from making room for other things? You know, um, if I teach a Coleridge Taylor song instead of a Mozart aria on Thursday, uh, how, what, what opportunities are going to be there, you know, and, and what sorts of questions are my students going to raise? And I've found that to be really rewarding. Um, another question, you know, to play devil's advocate right back, uh, <laughs> is what has part writing done for you lately, Greg? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know that, I don't know that resolving the seventh of a seventh chord down every time is that hard of a thing to learn. Um, but I also don't know that it's that useful of a thing in, in the real world. You know, I think that we, we have expanded our part writing curriculum to fill the four semesters that we're given. Um, and it is really useful to a small number of students in some very specific contexts. And so what we're trying to do here is find ways to reach those students in those contexts and give them the tools they need to be successful without making a bunch of students who are never going to use part writing in their lives um, and who aren't going to get that much out of it, um, spend four semesters on that in lieu of learning about any number of other things that they are going to encounter every single day. Yeah. And, and you know, I, you and I have talked about this a lot and that I, um, I had, I had that very classical, I, I can analyze Mozart through Brahms beautifully kind of music theory training, but then, but like part writing didn't click for me until I had figure bass training and was actually having to do real time part writing improvisation at the keyboard. And suddenly I thought, oh, doing this all on paper maybe didn't make the most sense for me originally, even so. So I'm, I, I'm with you on that, despite my devil's advocate question. You know, one way I think about this problem is traditionally the freshman theory curriculum at the college level is a weed out course, right? These are courses that are really hard and that, you know, you have to have really strong fundamentals and you have to just like do a lot of part writing. And a lot of students get through that um, kind of by, by counting, by writing in note names and by, by doing the algorithm and doing the math. Um, I'd rather see the freshman curriculum being an opportunity, being an open door, being an entry point, a gateway into studying music, um, and then giving the students the opportunity to drill down on those really very specialized skills a little later on. So one of the things we're doing here is offering a partimento class for sophomores. And so that's where students who are interested learn really detailed nuances of 18th century style. They learn to improvise in the 18th century style. They learn to compose in the 18th century style in a way that's really much more robust than what we do in a traditional part writing curriculum. And jazz students probably won't take that class. And probably a lot of voice majors won't take that class either unless they want to. But, um, you know, organ majors probably will take that class and will get the very specific skills that they need um, and that and and that will support the repertories that they're going to be performing for the rest of their careers yeah. in a way that's actually a lot more interesting and a lot more um, historically accurate than the way we teach part writing in the like traditional music theory curriculum. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think it's really lovely, and I, I I just I am jealous of these students getting this this uh, broad approach to uh, to music theory, and I just um, can't wait to see what that means for our next generation of young musicians. You know, we can't wait either. And, and it's, we're all learning and growing together and we're, uh, I'm sure we're going to make some mistakes and, uh, you know, hopefully be supportive of each other as we all find our way through this new landscape. Because um, the thing that's clear is that we can't do nothing. Mm -hmm. We can't just keep doing things the way they've always been done. And uh, so you have to, you have to start somewhere. Awesome. Well, I think that's probably a good place to, to wrap things up. I, I don't know. Do you think, Megan, David, anything anything we missed we should talk about? I can, I can just say thank you so much for visiting us uh, and talking with us about this stuff and actually both of these things. And actually, if I dare, with all this pedagogy stuff, there are some conferences coming up that are going to talk about these issues that are focused on these issues. Um, one of them I can't go to, but I am definitely going to be at the Music Theory Pedagogy Conference in Michigan in early June. I don't know if anyone is planning to be there. I will be this June at a conference at Case Western Reserve University about analyzing music by Black composers. Um, really right. exciting conference um, that's that's hopefully going to be really inspiring for helping music theorists think more about 
um, a much wider swath of repertory and how we can ethically bring that repertory to our students. Yeah, and that one's June 16th. Uh, am I right about that? That sounds right. I think that's why I can't go. <laughs> yeah, June 16th through 18th. Theorizing African-American music. Megan, thanks so much for joining us, for talking about these these two huge topics. I feel like I've learned just an enormous amount uh, in this short time from you, and I'm looking forward to diving into these topics a little more. Absolutely. I am always happy to talk hexachordal somization. It's my very favorite thing. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Excellent. Notes from the Staff is produced by utheory.com. Utheory is the most advanced online learning platform for music theory. With video lessons, individualized practice, and proficiency testing, Utheory has helped more than 100,000 students around the world master the fundamentals of music theory, rhythm, and ear training. Create your own free teacher account at utheory.com slash teach.